Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. In uh, 2020, uh, years of litigation finally reached some kind of conclusion. Dish Network was fined $210 million by the Federal Trade Commission. The original amount was $280 million, but the number was reduced on appeal. The reason? Robocalls. Who knew anyone was paying attention, right? The company had hired just about anyone with a call center uh, and turned them loose on America, persuading people to switch to satellite. Problem was, they either didn't care or they weren't keeping track on what tactics were being used to that end. They only cared about results, and so a lot of legal lines ended up being crossed in order to approve their own bottom line, and they got busted. Here's the problem with robocalls. You probably don't want to block every number you don't recognize. It could be your kid's school calling, it could be doctor or pharmacy, uh, or even Peace Lutheran Church using our one call now to notify you about an upcoming event or new car giveaway the following Sunday. Don't hold your breath about the car giveaway. Um, but, you know, usually the callers you don't want to miss either show up clearly on your caller ID or you've already given them permission to contact you in the fine print. The FTC has drawn a pretty clear line between legal and illegal. A recorded call is illegal when it is trying to sell you something without first having gotten your written permission to call and try to sell you something, specifically with a robocall. So technically, you have to sign up for them, even though we both know you probably didn't. Illegal or not, catching robocallers is a global problem. Many of those robocall operations originate overseas, and, and so the, the, uh, the agencies in the United States with oversight don't have uh, international law enforcement authority. Another thing is that technology has made robocalling so cheap and so easy that with just a couple hundred dollars, a bad player can cast a net of phone calls over an entire city. And, and if you just had, uh, if you got, uh, listen, it's a 0.01%. If just 0.01% of the people you call take that message seriously, and of those, if just 1% of that number uh, progress to the next level, you can make thousands of dollars. If you make three, four, five, or even six million calls and you got four, five, or six people on the line that you can sell a $3,000 car warranty to, you've just scored pretty big for a phone bill of only a few hundred dollars. How to protect yourself? Well, the Do Not Call Registry is probably a place to start, and you could even report them there, but you know, seriously, who's paying close attention to that? Uh, experts say that if you get a call from a number you don't recognize, don't answer. I know, a ringing phone must be answered, right? Uh, actually, no, it doesn't. If you do pick up and you do get a recording, they say hang up immediately. The more you engage with a robocall, the more calls you're going to get. And don't even think about pushing that button that says it'll allow you to opt out of future calls. Pushing any button will tell the caller that there's a live person at the end of that number, and you'll get even more calls. It's been my experience that uh, while yelling at a recorded voice may seem soothing in the moment, that's not very helpful either. Robocalls are just another uh, kind of bad behavior that that's becoming more the norm these days. You know, if you think about it, why, uh, why do you suppose the offer to extend your car's warranty is the most likely robocall to get lately? You know, maybe because we like to know that when bad things happen, and they will, um, that we're covered. 
protection against things like sickness and suffering and bad actors, maybe our own bad acting and already regrets. If anybody promises you life for any like that, hang up. That's some promise they can't make good on. But it doesn't mean there's no hope. See, Paul talks about bad behavior in his letter to the Ephesian Christians today. He's writing to a people who've been brought up from a long way down, brought near to God from a long ways off. Uh, relatively new Christians in the city of Ephesus, located in modern-day Turkey. These people were, for the most part, Gentile converts from paganism, worshipped false gods, worshipped you know, idols. People who never knew the one true God at all before Paul came to them with the good news about Jesus. By sharing his own story, what he'd been through, and by uh, sharing the story of God's love for them in Christ Jesus, they've been offered a whole new life with a short future. You know, maybe not a regret-free life. We all do things we wish we could take back, don't we? But a forgiven life, a hope-filled life, a hopeful life that doesn't have to end in regret. He brought them out of the darkness of unbelief into the light of a whole new life in Jesus. You know, Paul would typically start his work in the local synagogue. He would announce to the Jews in that place that the Messiah they had waited so long for had finally arrived, and that it was Jesus of Nazareth. Some of the people there would embrace his message and, and, and then, as a result, be forced to part ways with the synagogue to go out and start their own Christian groups. With their wealth of Old Testament knowledge, they became uh, leaders who would reach out to a largely Gentile population around them, non-Jewish population. But you have to remember, all these people were pretty new at this Christian living thing, so they needed some direction. In his letter, Paul's given them a really long list of examples as to what that might look like. And it's not a whole list of new commandments like you might think, but rather guidelines for the kind of living that will um, leave you with fewer regrets when it nears its end. It's a list that's already in progress from the previous chapter where our lesson picks up and it kind of summarizes with be imitators of God. It's like they knew one way of living and now that they've been brought to faith and given new life, they need some new guidelines, some direction regarding how to express that, that inevitable desire to return something to God for all the good he's done for us. Stop telling lies, Paul says. Don't let anger control you. It gives the devil a foothold. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Go to work. Don't use foul or abusive language. Instead, let everything you say be good and helpful. Get rid of all bitterness and rage, harsh words and slander, all types of evil behavior. Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Instead, be kind to each other and tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Imitate God in everything you do because you are his dear children. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. Everybody wants a better future for ourselves, for our families, for our children maybe. And little by little that future is arriving every single day. So why not make the most of that future by living as a child of the light starting right now? Did you catch the measuring stick that's sort of buried in that, that list, just in case you're having trouble to decide if something is of the darkness or, or of the light? It's Jesus, God. When you want to see if a plate or a glass got cleanly, take it out of your dishwasher, what do you do? Hold it 
told his disciples in John chapter 12, talking about himself now, he said, the light will be with you for a little longer, so walk while you have the light. Then the darkness will not catch you. If you walk in the darkness, you won't know where you're going. Believe in the light while you still have it, so that you will become children of light. Of course, trying to measure up to Jesus' perfect light is about as, our perfect life is about as high as a bar can ever be set. Um, so it, it's not saying that, it, that it's easy. Uh, Paul's trying to, I guess, shake these people up, reminding them really just how far down they've come up from. And to wake them up, I guess you could say, while they still had time. Ephesus was actually one of the ancient world's great cities, um, but it was a city of darkness. It sounds like it was very beautiful from what we know about it. Uh, it's called the Light of Asia. It boasted broad paved streets, libraries, lecture halls. Uh, it had a 24,000 seat amphitheater. But the crowning attraction in Ephesus was really the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world. It's said to have taken 120 years to build. 127 60-foot tall pillars held up its roof. Inside was the most sacred idol of the time, the great Artemis of Ephesus, goddess of light by night. The, she was the, the virgin huntress and the goddess of, of uh, uh, motherhood and fertility. So along comes Paul with his promise of salvation and eternal life in heaven by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus, and God uh, blessed his message, and, and, and the people there who were used to going to temple prostitutes for their blessing turned to Jesus instead. Definitely a miracle. Ephesus was where Paul had gotten into trouble with Demetrius, the silversmith, and some others who had made a pretty good living making little little uh, replicas of the temple out of, out of the precious metal. The sudden growth of Christianity, Paul's three-year ministry there had helped to usher in, was cutting into their profits. And they had a huge demonstration as a result. It was threatening to, to uh, uh, erupt into a full-blown riot. You know, Paul got the message that maybe, maybe it was time to move on to Macedonia for a while. God's word is powerful. It changes lives. God's word never returns to him empty. You can imagine the kind of conflict these new believers must have endured, not only within themselves, but with their friends and, and their families as well. Paul says, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Could Paul have written, written that letter to us? Yeah, absolutely. You know, since man's fallen to sin way back in the garden, when haven't the times been evil? That's the unique timelessness of Scripture, though. The world hasn't changed and neither has the Word. We still live in dark times and God's Word is still truth. And so he wants them to... Uh, warns them, just, just like his words are a warning to us, to walk carefully. He says, for one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And he quotes what a lot of people believe was probably a hymn that was sung when people were baptized back then. Uh, words go, arise, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. He's telling that before being brought to faith by the Holy Spirit through word and sacrament, they'd been as good as dead. But now they've been brought to new life. And the very light of Christ is shining on them. Listen again. He says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. You know, it's kind of like Paul saying, you're only here for so long. So 
Make the best use of it. Be careful, he says. Be wise. Don't waste it. You only get so much. You know, younger Martin Luther, preaching on this same text, said that if you want to know what God expects of you as a child of the light, he said, go to the Creed and the Ten Commandments. They'll tell you. Regulate your life by them. Uh, an older, more seasoned Luther, preaching on this, this text nine years later, said this. We should live as Christians and be aware of everything that might hinder or draw us away from the Christian life. For it's not the case with a Christian that once he believes the word and has been baptized into the Lord, who shed his precious blood, we should live without a care according to our own pleasure, as if everything were all taken care of, snoring and slumbering away, saying, I'm baptized and have the gospel. I will leave it at that and live without any care whatsoever, as if he did not dare do anything. That's not enough. The abomination, Luther says, has intruded more and more over time. We say, but I'm a Christian. I believe. I'm baptized. And I can talk all about it, too. And we become presumptuous and lazy spirits who do not write but fall from the tree like wormy fruit. Note to self, don't be wormy fruit. <laughs> God works the miracle of faith. Salvation has been won and made ours, but that's just the beginning of a process called sanctification that continues our whole life. That struggling against the darkness and growing in our faith. Now, don't snore and fall asleep, Luther warns. In Ephesians, Paul calls that unwise. Do not be foolish, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In Proverbs 9.10, from our Old Testament lesson this morning, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, fear in this case means that reverence and respect and maybe even that awe we have for our holy, loving, merciful God. To know Jesus is to know God. Uh, not just intellectually, but personally. Understanding that he suffered and died on the cross, not just for the sins of the whole world, but for your sins. Not just that he's at the right hand of, the God, of God today, interceding on behalf of believers everywhere that he's there interceding for you. There's no future in foolishness. Foolishness will almost always leave regrets in its wake. Every one of us, when contemplating our future, those crossroads that, that life seems to always bring us to, has, has asked, why am I here? Why has God given me life? None of us asked to be here, did we? But through whatever series of events may have occurred to make it so, here we are. And although we we might have been surprised and bewildered those first few hours, hours we found ourselves outside the womb. We were no surprise to God. The prophet Jeremiah brought the word of the Lord to the people of Israel. He said, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. God made us. We didn't make him, although some people would claim it's the other way around. We were created to love him and to worship him. And in turn, he pledged to care for us and love us. And he's demonstrated over and over and over again just how much he does love his children, even at the cost of his own son, suffering and death for our sons. And yet his second nature, as this might seem to some of you who have been raised in the church, there are so many people outside those doors who are out there wandering aimlessly in the darkness of unbelief, without purpose, simply because no one has told them. Here's where we get equipped to fix that. Beginning in Sunday school, 
affirmation, worship, uh, through music, scripture reading, Bible study, through the conversations that happen each week between fellow believers. Here's where we get equipped to share that good news that saves, that gives people new life and hope for an eternal future, guaranteed future. Now, everybody has sound mind wants to make this world a better place, and we all have opportunities to contribute to that. But when, when you look at the big picture, the eternal, what's going to happen to me after, you know, in the life to come after this world uh, picture, and why? You're going to find that it all begins and ends with Jesus. Now it's your time. It's your choice. Your opportunity. So use it wisely. No regrets. You know, be a blessing. And you'll find that when you share the love and story of Jesus, you'll be blessed. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus.